This is from James 5, 1 through 6, and it's titled Warning to Rich Oppressors. And please pray for the pastor. I don't know if you noticed, the last three Sundays in James have been a very hard sermons to preach. So pray for the Holy Spirit to touch him and that you're touched as he gives the sermon. But these are the words. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the days of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent people who are not opposing you. Well, didn't that give you goosebumps? We, we uh, were talking in elders, like uh, Ted mentioned, how, how hard these sermons were. I'm like, my preaching's been hard? Um, but they just meant that, you know, wouldn't someone like to be included in this list of rich people? I mean, I read that and I was like, I don't know if this really applies to, you know, in our culture at least, many of us that would be, would be loaded, but um, it is a challenging passage, and we're going to read together, um, learn together, I hope, this morning a little bit about what the Spirit of God might want to say to us as we study this passage. I'm going to read first a quote um, from a Wesleyan commentary. The writer's name is J.M. Walters, just to, just to kind of refresh us about what the book of James is all about. It's a little lengthy, so I'm going to ask you just to, to pay attention and listen through it. But this is, this is just kind of a reminder from Dr. Walters about what James has been up to. And then after that, we'll just see how what he said kind of applies to what Ted just read for us. Walters wrote, The world of religious faith is a world filled with possibilities for good and evil. On one hand, authentic religious faith is considered by its adherents to be the most important element in their lives. It serves as an anchor of stability within a rapidly changing series of life. On the other hand, few aspects of human experience are as prone to being counterfeit and downright phony as is our religious faith. The people so desire they can adopt certain marks of religion and be thought righteous by many around them without experiencing any of the moral transformation that is normally associated with religious practice. In such a case, the real aim of authentic faith has been supplanted by a kind of surface-level religiosity, an outward faith that never accomplishes its inner transforming purpose. That was the kind of world to which the letter of James was written. The people of James's day had become satisfied with certain outward marks of religion that failed to penetrate the ultimate target of their Christian faith, their own hearts. <coughs> The result of such a religiosity is a fractured, fragile Christian community confronted with a multitude of issues that threaten to disrupt and destroy it. The only hope for such a people is a recovery of authenticity in their faith practices and the total commitment of their hearts to God. That's what we've been sharing together, especially the last three weeks that we've come together, this total commitment to God. That is the fundamental intent of this letter from James. He means to call his readers home. They need to turn away from the popular force faith 
and return to the ways of true religion. The epistle of James is a commentary on our times as well. We live in a day where religion is approved, but only up to a point. There's a certain amount of affirmation given to people who profess to believe specific truths or tenets of a certain faith. It is culturally acceptable to be involved in religion as long as it doesn't go too far. Large percentages of the North American public indicate that their continued belief in God and prayer and even the importance of being born again. However, there is an ever-widening gap between religious profession and religious practice. This has resulted in a situation very similar to the days in which James wrote his epistle. We see widespread profession of religion with little corresponding practice of it. We are living in the days of virtual Christianity. Think about that for a minute. Christianity for many, and I'm almost done, is simply a matter of believing certain things quite apart from any real or lasting effect on the rest of their lives. Our shallow approach to faith has led to the ironic state where more people than ever are professing religion, while the culture around us becomes less hospitable to religion all the time. James' words are a needed antidote to the spiritual malaise of our own day. He champions the cause of true religion as opposed to the empty hype of pretend religion. His words call the believer back to the practice of wholehearted spirituality that has characterized the authentic people of God from the very beginning. James has gained a well-deserved reputation across the years for presenting a no-nonsense approach to Christianity. He has little patience with the posturing and pretense of shallow faith. He minces no words as he calls his readers, and all of us as well, back to the foundations of an authentic biblical faith. And it is in that context that we look at the passage this morning How is God calling us as believers this morning who probably don't see ourselves as rich by any facet of the imagination, closer to the heart of God, back to true faith and true religion? And we deal with this aspect of money in our lives. And I don't know any pastor who doesn't come to a subject like money and wring his hands and lose sleep at night because it is just one of those things. Here we go again. The pastor's talking about money. Isn't that all he ever talks about? I'm grateful that Jesus set a great example by using that as its most frequented topic in any of his messages or public discourse, so we have a good example to follow. So after that long quote, let's have a story, shall we? There was, uh, years ago, a groom getting ready to get married, and he come to the pastor, I think even before the rehearsal night, um, with an unusual offer, and he, he brought out a $100 bill, and whenever someone hands you money in ministry, be careful, and he said, I will give you $100 if you change the wedding vows, before we say them. When you get to the part where I'm supposed to promise to love, honor, and obey and be fruitful, faithful to her forever, just leave that out and it'll be our secret with this $100. He passed the minister the $100 bill and walked away satisfied. Well, the day of the wedding came and the groom thought everything was arranged. And it came time in the service for the vows and the pastor stared at the young man in his eyes and says, will you promise to prostrate yourself before her? Obey her every command and wish. Serve her breakfast in bed every morning of your life and swear to eternally before God and your lovely wife that you will never ever look at another woman. Quietly and sheepishly, the young man says, yeah, I guess. And leaned forward to the pastor and said, I thought we had a deal. The pastor put the $100 bill back into the groom's hand and whispered, she made me a better offer. (laughs) I like that. I thought you would enjoy that as well. Well, the fact of the matter is that we live in a world that is offering us a whole lot. 
And the temptation that I'm thinking about following this morning in our lives is just that, you know, I don't know that any of us have the temptation just to sit there and the vast vaults of money that we have extra. You know, I don't know too many of you, you know, UK was a big problem. I knew people who had very little to no money, but they had rooms set aside with food just in case something terrible happened. But generally speaking, in our culture today, you know, the, the, the upper class is becoming more powerful and more wealthy. The lower class is becoming even poorer, and the middle class is pretty much slowly but surely just disappearing altogether. And so we find ourselves certainly not um, in the upper class. We may see ourselves somewhere near the lower class or maybe somewhere in the middle. But So what does the Holy Spirit want to say to you and I this morning about this passage that is hard to preach? And it is hard to read. I mean, he just flat out comes out and says, all of you rich people, get on your knees and weep and howl and moan because it's not going to go well for you in the end. And I'm like, there's a feel-good message if I've ever heard one. What is, what is the Holy Spirit going to say to you and me as we look at this passage together? And so there's, there's a theme in the Bible when it talks about wealth, and, and there's this theme of, of kind of fading away. And it talks even about our own bodies will fade away someday like a flower, like a blade of grass, and our riches as well can fade away or rust can come upon them. And normally gold and silver isn't something that rusts, but it can tarnish and be discolored by the effects of time. And so the author is talking this morning to you and I, I believe, about a few ways that that our faith can be spoiled by reflecting too much upon the issue of money. And then for those in the passage this morning, a little bit of what happened to them as they went through their experience together I was frustrated to come to the conclusion that no scholar is certain of who this passage is really written to. Almost everywhere else in the book of James where he extends some kind of greeting, he says, brothers. He, he, he names the audience before he, before he blasts them, <laughs> before he teaches to them, before he preaches to them. And in this section, he just is talking to the rich. He's talking to the powerful. He's talking to the up-and-ups. In the, in the culture today, and, and there's no context of, of faith as a part of their experience. It is just basically that money has become the only part of who they are and what they do, and it's destroying them. So this, this idea of, of, of focusing on money too much, spoiling the things that God has wanted to do in our life, and we're going to look at that theme together for a few moments. What, what spoils as we journey through this conversation together. You'll see it on the screen. One of the first things that the author says is our happiness is spoiled. Our happiness and, our, and literally our riches will, will waste away. James is really potent in his speech when he talks to these people about, about not just being sad. There is an agony of the soul and spirit when, when, when everything that they are is focused on earning and, and obtaining and gathering and and I, I think that we would probably agree this morning that we live in a culture that sounds a lot like that. If you watch television, um, there are very few commercials that encourage you to give. It is all about flipping on the television to see what you need next to be happiest. Seeing what you are seen out on and what you need to buy in order to be happy. And there is something wrapped up in the human struggle of materialism that comes out in each of our lives as we think of the context of this passage. Money was everything. It was their identity. 
It was the source of provision for them. It was what made them well known in the community. It was what would buy them any kind of happiness they could have wanted. I read a quote from Brad Pitt this, Brad Pitt this week, you know, um, famous, wealthy, out the wazoo. And Brad said, you know, I woke up one morning and I had everything I wanted. Literally everything that I could have ever wanted. I, if I didn't have it, I had the money to go buy it. But I went into the bathroom that morning and I looked my mirror and it was just me and me. I was stuck with myself. And all the other things that I had, I was still me. And I had to learn how to deal with who I was and what I was about. And I realized in that moment that money didn't really matter anymore. If the depths of who I was was not happy and content, I could continue to buy and purchase and collect and store up, and it would only draw out from me the happiness that I wanted to be there. There is a kind of spoiling that happens when we focus on the wrong things. There was a, uh, another rich man who was driving his BMW around a mountainous curve, and, and he hit a patch of black ice, and, and he, he hit the, the, uh, the rail bar on the side, and part of his car was hanging over the edge, and part of it wasn't. And as he hit that rail, his door flew off, and his left arm was severed. <clears throat> so he's kind of hanging out the, the door of the car with his left arm. must have been rolled down the hill somewhere. And an officer comes by and is talking to him, and he was like, man, your car, your BMW is in bad shape. He was like, oh, my BMW, my BMW, it's ruined. My car, my car. And the officer said, have you taken a look at your arm? And he's like, oh, my Rolex, my Rolex, my Rolex. And the officer says, your arm. And he was like, it was all about his possessions. And sometimes in our world today, it can be data symbols. It can become about the things that we have. And if we can just get a nicer car or a nicer house or move to a different part of town or get a better job, and none of those things are bad by themselves. None of those things are wrong. Is that when it becomes the focus of getting happiness and being content and filled, that it becomes a problem for us. And for the rich people in this passage, it was everything. And, the, and, and James is saying, not only is it not going to lead to eternal happiness, not only is it going to lead to your downfall. It's, you ought to get down on your knees and pour your heart out because of the damage that's being done to you and to your friends and to your home and to every part of your life because you've allowed it to take over everything that you are. And the temptation for you and I is in our busy, materialistic world is that earning an extra dollar, getting that nicer thing becomes our greatest pursuit. And we think if we have this and we get that, then we're going to be happy this morning. And it may just be, it's the last thing that we need. There's a spoiling that happens when we focus only on this one thing. read a story this week of John D. Rockefeller, one of the most wealthiest men in the world during his time. And he, at this point in his life, at 55 years old, was dying. He had a bleeding ulcer. The doctors couldn't cure it. The only thing he could eat, if he could at all, was crackers and milk. And, and every hour, at least, if he did fall asleep, he'd wake up in agonizing pain. Millions and millions of dollars, every possession he could ever want, but yet so susceptible to his own humanity. The doctor said, you're dying, and you're going to be dead in a very short time. And he got to thinking about his life. And in his own words, he said, it's time for me to stop concentrating on making money and start doing some of the things that I've always wanted to do and ought to do. I've always been too busy to do these things before. 
and I'm going to start giving away my money. And he did. And the more he gave, the more God gave to him. And the more he gave, the happier he got. And he started giving his money left and right away. And he testified later that when I learned to give, it so changed my life that my ulcer was healed. And for more than 30 years, he continued on in his quest to be a blessing to those around him. Diseases were healed because of the money that he raised and gave. And a dying man learned that a secret is there in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And the polarizing part for us is, no, we're not overburdened with an extra amount of money. But it could just be that the money that we have is so important to us that we hold on to that with just as iron grip as the rich might hold on to theirs. Anyone that I've ever talked to who has, who has taken the step that Dr. Rockefeller took and, and said, Lord, you've given me this so I can be a blessing to others, have never regretted it. There's been a change in them and a change in their focus, a change in their life. And instead of spoiling, it has brought new life. It has brought new energies. It has brought new love. It has brought new relationships. It's opened new ministries and changed eternal destinies. Because instead of, instead of being stuck in our pocket or stuck in our heart or stuck in the bank, God has brought it out there to use to change the world around us. And instead of doing that, these rich people were hoarding it away for themselves. And James says it's just a matter of time before it all comes out. It might be a year, it might be 10 years from now, it might be 50 years from now. But one of these days, it's all going to come to fruition. In those days, there's really only a few things that the rich people could have as a status symbol. One of them was clothes. If you were poor, you were lucky to have one set of clothes. You might have a pair of shorts or a pair of sandals, but more than likely, that might be all that you would ever own is just one pair at a time. And for the rich, you know, it's kind of like uh, you see these people go to Macy's and, and they literally have two people following them with all the clothes that they bought. And, 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 and there was a status symbol in having dozens of, of, of pieces of wardrobe because then there's somebody. And all the while they walk by the people who had little to nothing and missed it completely. It spoils our own happiness when we get focused on what we think we need the most is really what we need to give away the most. There's something else in this passage that, again, may be foreign to us and, and hard to understand how to apply, but there's a spoiling of integrity. And what the, what the writer is saying in this passage is that these rich people would hire their own family members sometimes, hire their own friends, hire the people, you know, anyone who wor- is working for you, their job is to, to help you out, right? You don't hire someone to destroy your business, right? You don't hire someone to, you know, make your productivity go down. You don't hire someone to, um, you know, make your bottom line go down. You hire someone to be a blessing to you and to work for you so that you can be more successful and, and hopefully from that first passage is even to find how to give more. But in this section, what James is saying is that there comes a time for some of us in, in our pursuit of, of that extra dollar, the grand dollar, the only dollar, is that we run over people in the process. And I've had this happen in my own family years ago when I was a teenager. And um, I'd grown up doing drywall finishing pretty much my whole life. And, um, and I got to where I could drive and where I could get around and had my own bank account. And I helped my dad start his own drywall business. And... Uh, you know, I had an hourly rate that was set, um, but things were getting off off the ground, and 
And payday came, and, and there was nothing there. It was like, well, we'll try the next time. And then the next time there, and it was like four months before I got paid. And, and I love my dad, and that's way water under the bridge. But there was a time in there where it felt like I was being run over because I was to be there to help things get started, and, and there was a sense where I was being let down. And what James is trying to tell us is that we get focused on the bottom line, we start to hurt the people around us. I can remember talking with the father one day, and he um, his hungry. And I was like, well, couldn't you feed him? He was like, no, I had to go to the bar. And I was just like, ah, wow, we, we've got some problems here. <laughs> we got we to gotta take care of our own first before we go out and do those other things. And any of you who have been parents or raised children, you know what I'm talking about. You know the sacrifices that you've made, the things that you've gone without so your kids could have nice things. You know the sacrifices that you've made in the long hours that you work so your kids could go on that trip and be a part of that adventure and go to those places and live those dreams. And you would have it no other way. But sometimes in the middle of all of our busyness, it can become more about us than them. And James is saying that when it becomes more about you, the decisions that you can make sometimes become really faulty ones. And you start to run over people in the pursuit of your own desires and needs. And our integrity is spoiled when that happens. Many times in the Bible, there are references to this idea of not withholding wages from those who have earned them. And that was James is talking about. These people came and work, and you weren't paying them. Give them what they're worth, what their wages are worth. And there is a sense of selfishness in this passage that is more worried about what I have than what I can give to someone else. I mean, it was due to them. It was their right to get paid. And they had the money to do it. It wasn't like, you know, the income wasn't coming in. It wasn't like the business was failing. Things were going great, and they could just pad their pockets just a little bit more by not paying them what they were worth or not paying them at all. And what a sad state it is when we become focused only on our own needs and not on the needs and the responsibilities that God has given to those around us. James is pretty hard in this passage about how he talks about this. He said, the wages that you have failed are crying out against you. That's a common theme in the Bible when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. Remember what happened? They, God goes walking through the Garden of Eden. What's changed? This change is crying out to me. Or when their son committed the first act of murder, it says that his blood is crying out to me from the ground. And there is this theme in the Bible of, of our sins finding us out of our sins crying out against us in these dark places, these secret decisions that we think well, no one will find out about or won't affect anyone, the Bible says they will cry out against you in the appointed day. The cries of the harvesters have reached out to the ears of the Lord Almighty. And Krista, I couldn't help but think of you when I read part of this passage and what you're going through right now and the cries that you shared. And thank you for letting us pray for you. There is... Um, an oppression that comes when we are taken advantage of that is so crushing and is so difficult that it is hard to know what to hold on to. And the Bible is saying to us this morning, he hears our cries. He hears the pain of our heart when things don't go right, when we're taken advantage of, when we're run over or literally robbed in front of our face. It is not hidden from God. And there's an accounting that will come one day, and it may not be today, and it may not be tomorrow. But there's an accounting that happens in the, in the presence of God that we all have to face one day. 
There's something else in this passage, and James talks about a spoiled lifestyle. He talks about a spoiled lifestyle. He says, now you've hoarded all of this wealth and you've saved it for the last days. Many authors believe that he's talking about the end of the world, not just you know a later day, but literally the end. And they believe that their storehouses of wealth and power and position will be enough to get them through to the other side in a sense. But the fact of the matter is, most of the things they did to obtain all of that wealth and power and prestige will be what destroys them, not brings them through to the other side. And the practice of our faith, again, is where James is talking about in our own life. How we make decisions with what we buy and how we spend our money and the places that we go. Um, I read an article this week that says that Americans spend 10 times as much money as any other country on eating out. And I'm, we have a, an event at church that is eating out together, and I'm certainly not preaching against the ministry that we're starting together, but if you look at your budget at the end of the month and you spend as much money eating out as you do on your grocery bill, then there might be some things out of balance. And there is, there is a place in our life for accountability with the way, that we, the way that we use what God has given us. And there's this sense that in our world today, doing and going and spending on whatever we want will make us happy. And that will be our source of happiness. I read an article this week, and, and I tried to look it up, and I couldn't find what I'd read, but there was a man by the name of Wen, and he was a prisoner in North Korea during one of the world wars. And he said it was the most deplorable conditions you could ever imagine. You, you were lucky to have underwear or socks. You might have a few bites of food every day. He was like, and, and he lived, he's lived in the United States for a while, and he's moved back to South Korea. He's like, I know what it is to have. And we literally had nothing, not even the shirts on our back. But he said, we were the happiest, most contented people that I've ever known in my life because we had each other, and we had faith in something that we could do nothing about and could do nothing to control. He was like, I never heard of a suicide in those prison camps. I never heard someone complain about their wages because they were grateful just to have enough food to get through another day. And he got back to regular society and he was just shocked at how much they had and how satisfied they could have been with the things that they had. And all they could do was complain about not having enough, or needing better, needing greater. And there was this sense of of lack of fulfillment everywhere he went by even most of the people in the church. And he he was asked, he was like, if you could change one thing about right now, what could you do? He was like, I wish I could go back to where my heart was purely innocent. I had need of nothing except a breath to live another day. And friends, that's where the Lord has kind of guided my heart as I've thought, how can, how can we preach on the passage of all the all the woes of the rich when most of us probably don't find ourselves anywhere near that. It is a battle that you and I have maybe every day in the way that we, we find our joy, the things that we focus on, the things that we look to for identity. Is it your identity first and foremost that you're a child of God or is it the job you have? I remember talking with a guy one day and, and guys, you know, you meet someone for the first time. What's one of the first questions you ask? What do you do? I asked somebody once, who are you? And they just kind of looked at me like, whoa, that's a weird question. Who are you? And there's like, I don't know what you're like, well, I'll, I'll share my story. I'm a child of the king. 
My sins are forgiven. My, my past is wiped away. I have a future and hope and eternal life to look forward to. And, and I have grace that will be more than enough for my life. I have everything that I could ever need given to me by the one who gave everything so that I could have it. Who are you? Where is our identity found? And that is, I think, at the heart of what James is trying to talk to the readers about. Because it wasn't just the rich that read this. Everyone in that area that was a part of this church and this community read this letter, and I think it was just as challenging to my heart as it was to theirs to be challenged with that idea of where do I find my happiness? find my sense of joy and accomplishment and my identity? Is it in what I do? Or is it in who I am and the family that I'm a part of? We're going to close with that this morning. The, the next one you have on your screen about spoiled lives is very close to the rest. I just feel in my heart that this is, this is as far as the Lord wants to take this with you and I. It is, it is a struggle that you and I face in life not to be rich. I don't think any of us have that battle going on right now. It is to be thankful for what we have, to be contented in the place that God has given, to be wise in the things that God has bestowed upon us and to be thankful. Or I didn't read anything in that passage about these people who had so much being grateful for any of it. Aren't you thankful for everything God has given you today? Can you say amen with me? I am so thankful for what God has given to us, the provision that he's made for us, and that I don't have to worry about a thing. Now, I'm probably not perfect at that, I'll admit to you, but I don't have to. I can let it go. I can trust in God that he's going to provide everything that we need. And what a blessing it is to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto Jesus and on his provision for us. And when we make him our focus, we, we commit ourselves and surrender ourselves to him, then our true spirit of generosity comes out. Our ability to serve and to give and to minister is piqued and blessed and motivated by a desire to please God. Not to be noticed, not to be well thought of, not to be praised by the pastor, but a heart that is burdened and burning and in passion for those who have so little. And James says that is real faith. Real religion is not building up something so you look good. Real religion is going out there and doing good for the people around you. And the passage we read last week said, if you know what to do and you do it not, well, he just calls it what it is. It's sin in your life and in mine. Calls it what it is. And friends, for us today, who are we? Children of God, blessed and touched by his love, called to serve and minister to the rich, maybe, but more than likely to those who have less than we do. We got out our family checkbook, our budget this week, and we looked at the amount that we're giving to those who have little or nothing. Uh Uh-oh, now he's gone and done it. (laughs) It got really quiet in here all of a sudden. That's okay. means we're thinking. It can real easily become about what we want and what we want to do and where we want to go and what we want to accomplish. And I think that what James is trying to say is there's a different faith than that. There's a different way to live, a sacrificial living, a committed way of living, a thankful way of living, a generous way of living that changes and moves and morphs as the Holy Spirit leads in our life 
And there is this rigidity to the people that James is writing to that it is only about what they have and what they can save and what they can gain. And that is who they are. And I wonder this morning if for, for friends, for Jesus' disciples, if it's the opposite. If it's not about what we have and what we can gain, but who we have and what we can give away. There might just be a transformation that James is talking about that the author that I read that long quote from says that for most of the church in the United States, faith is only a virtual Christianity. It is something that is on the outside, and it's very difficult to let it to come all the way on the inside. Aren't you grateful that God is faithful, though? We're going to invite the worship team now to come and get ready to lead us in, in the first hymn I ever remember hearing. And I've probably heard it sang that in Amazing Grace maybe more than any other. But God is faithful to work in our lives as only he can do. And as we sing together, we worship together, let's trust that the Holy Spirit will continue to be faithful as we ponder these words together.